0: It's interesting how, how different people are captivated, are wowed, are awed, are attracted to different things, right? Uh, some people love uh, different kinds of light. I, I, love, I love natural light that comes through the windows. I'm not a big fan of artificial light. Some of you have gotten to know this more recently. If you walk to my office, see all the lights off. That's why. I love natural light. I don't really like artificial light that much. Some of us Uh, love and are infatuated with the the changing of the seasons, which we've kind of been given a bit of taste of this weekend through a little bit cooler temperatures. Uh, Some of us love weather. Some of us love bugs. And some of us love snakes and animals, all sorts of things. Some of us love fingernails and to do fingernails and hair and clothes. Some of us love all kinds of different food some of us like and and others of us were just like whatever you know just just fill my belly i just want to be full that's i don't care about the taste i don't care about anything else just give me food some of us like consume ourselves with with sports right We, we we love to 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 keep up with sports center and we have our favorite sports and some of us just just like i i really don't care anything about sports it's just like whatever But all of us have have these different things that we're sort of attracted to. These things that we're captivated by. But one thing that's universally captivated, universally captivating, is the Lord God Almighty. Or at least He should be. Right? He should be captivating to every single person on the face of the earth. But the realization is, is that, that some of us are more captivated by God than others. Some of us are, are more, are more wild. Some of us are more amazed. And, and even if we t- not only take the difference between different people in the church, but also the difference between the people in the church and the people outside the church, we realize that, yes, there are varying degrees of, of being captivated by God himself. And why is that? Why, why is God not universally captivating to everyone on the face of the earth? And why is He more or less captivated even by His people? Because I think, I think the degree to which we are, we are captivated by God has implications for the rest of life. The degree to which we are captivated by God has implications for the rest of life. Namely, the way that we live our lives and the way that we view our lives and the way that we interpret and view and think about and react to the different events that happen in our everyday lives. More specifically, I think the degree to which we are captivated by God has an immediate effect On whether we are Christians that are defined by joy and gladness of heart as we see the Israelites in verse 66. Or whether we are apathetic or underwhelmed by the Lord God Almighty. I think think the degree to which we are captivated by God has an immediate effect, direct relation to, to how we view life in respect to whether or not we are We are Christians marked by joy and gladness of heart or whether we're apathetic or underwhelmed or gloomy or hopeless or pessimistic when it comes to things that happen in life. And the question I want to answer from 1 Kings 8, okay, what, what, what about God is so captivating? In other words, if I were to correctly understand who God is, how would that change the degree to which I'm captivated by? What, what are some things that should, that should really grip my heart and grip my person that I might become more captivated with the Lord? And the first one is, is that God is present. What do I mean? Well, I mean, God is present, right? God is here. God is, God is there. God is with His people, namely is the one that I'm trying to get at. And this is, what ha- this is what's happening in verses 1 through 12 of 1 Kings 8, right? W- what we see is that the temple has been finished. It's been being built. It's been being prepared since 1 Kings 5, right? We gather the materials in 1 Kings 6. It starts being built in 1 Kings 7. Uh, the furnishings are built. And now we get to 1 Kings 8. The temple is done. So now what? Well, the only thing that's left is, is really For God Himself to move in. And this is exactly what happens. Solomon assembles all the, the elders and the priests, and what do they do? They go get the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It's time to move it out of the tabernacle. The tabernacle's irrelevant at this point. The Ark shouldn't be there anymore. The Temple is now God's dwelling place, or going to be. And so they go get the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and they bring it to the Temple, they put it inside the Temple. As we kind of think, think kind of biblical theology of the Ark of the Covenant, what, what, what is it? What does it represent? What, what does it symbolize? What is it a sign of? Well, really, kind of in a way, it's a sign of God's presence among his people themselves, right? Even as we've been going through the book of Numbers, we realize that as the people travel, uh, where's the Ark of the Covenant? Well, it's in their midst. That's kind of signifying that the God himself is with his people. Well, where's the Ark of the Covenant being brought to? Well, now it's being brought to the temple in the midst of his people, and the author makes specific note concerning what was actually in the temple. Verse 9. There's nothing in the temple except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb. Where the Lord made a covenant with his people Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And so what's in the temple? What's God's very words? Right? It's, God's, it's God's word to his people. Right? God is, is in a sense moving into the temple. But not just in the form of the ark but also in the form of His glory. This is perhaps, maybe, the climax of the Old Testament. Verse 10, And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. What has moved into the temple well, Just as in the beginning of the book of Numbers, when Moses finishes the tabernacle, God's glory cloud descends on the tabernacle, uh, showing His people, uh, communicating to His people that He's here, He's, he's there, he's, he's amidst His people, He's present. The same thing happens here with the temple. Right? It's finished. It's done. And what does God do? Right? He moves in. Right? The glory cloud descends upon the temple And he's there. Solomon attests to the the same thing. Solomon said in verse 12, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in. For God has moved into the temple. God is now present with his people in a very real and a very tangible way. And God's presence with his people has implications. We kind of read over it quite quickly, but in the beginning of verse 11, a cloud filled the the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister. In other words, when God moves into the temple, the priests have to move out, right? They have to get away. They can't be in the presence of this sort of magnitude of God's glory, right? They can't stay there. And the same concept is picked up in the New Testament, where basic New Testament theology, especially the theology of the Holy Spirit, tells us that, that when, it, when, when someone becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit is poured out into their hearts and, and language is used in the New Testament to signify that, or to tell us that the Holy Spirit lives in them, right? He is present in them. The Holy Spirit goes where we go, right? He, he lives in our hearts. In other words, He temples in us. The body is called a temple of the Holy Spirit, and in first Kings, or I'm sorry, First Corinthians chapter six, Paul picks up on this exact idea. Chapter six, verse, verses seventeen and following, or verse eighteen, flee from sexual immorality. Why? Verse nineteen, because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Right? The New Testament uses this temple theology, this, this the idea that, that God is present with His people in the form of the Holy Spirit to tell us that, that where God is, sin should not be. Right? Where God dwells, where God makes His home, where God temples, sin should not. And so, what difference, again, is kind of going back to the, the center of the, the, the point. What difference does it make that God is present? Well, it makes the difference that where, where God is, where God's presence is, sins should not be. In other words, the presence of God and sin do not exist comfortably. Right? God does not exist comfortably where sin does. Right? It, it needs to be one or the other. This, is, this theology is, again, exclaimed throughout the Old Testament as well. We're, we're told it time and time again that, that God is a jealous God, right? God, God wants the attention. God wants the love. God wants the affections, the devotion of His people. He doesn't want them to be devoted to any other idol or any other God. He wants it. This is what's true of God, and this is what's what's true of sin, right? Where God exists, where God is present, sin should not be. And so so how how do we deal with that? Well, obviously, we can look in our own lives. We can also look to the Scriptures. Captivation with one leads to a diminished amazement with the other. In other words, if I'm captivated... With God, then sin really just isn't quite as tasteful and amazing. It works vice versa as well. It works the other way around. Right? If I'm captivated by my sin, then God really doesn't look that amazing either. So it, as a result, we, we kind of have to, to ask ourselves, is the reason that maybe I'm kind of apathetic towards or underwhelmed by God, well, is it because something else has my captivation? Something else has my heart? Something else has my attention and my love and my affections? Because again, it can really be only one or the other. My, my, my lack of captivation and my lack of my lack of joy, my lack of, of gladness of heart, be because some sin, some, some other thing is stealing it away, some other sin. Right? In Paul's case in 1 Corinthians 6, it was sexual immorality for us. It could be any of, anything. It could be people worship. It could be self-worship. Right? I want all the attention. I want what I want. I want it when I want it. I want, I want, I want. Right? We become com- people, a people that are consumed by ourselves instead of a people consumed by the Lord God Almighty. And so, then, what is the solution? Well, the solution is. <laughs> we get this, can- this is questioning and, and counseling all the time: you know, how, do, how do I fight my sin? How do I? How do I pursue God? And how do I rid my life of this sin? And we all, you know. The tendency is is to to try to come up with some silver bullet explanation or some silver bullet answer that's going to solve everything like this. But, but the reality is is that that's not the case. The reality is is that is that I have to to work hard to grow my affections, my love, my devotion for God to become captivated by Him. Right to see His beauty and magnificence, and then sin's beauty and magnificence diminishes over time. It takes devotion it takes us realizing the presence of god in our hearts and leveraging that right leveraging the power of the holy spirit asking and praying the lord would you deliver me from the sin would you remove it from my life would you would you heal me would you make me better would you make christ more beautiful and my sin more ugly this is how you fight sin. This is how we become captivated by God. And so why, why, why might some of us not be as captivated by God as others? Well, well, one, because we might not realize the effectiveness of God's presence. Number two, we also might fail to realize that God is faithful. This is what Solomon concerns himself with in, in verses 12 to 21, right? He, he, he emphasizes in his, in his prayer, in his blessing, uh, that, that the Lord has done exactly what he said he would do, right? Uh, we, we reflect back on the, the, the Davidic covenant, way back to Second Samuel 7, right? What does it mean that God is faithful? Well, it means that he keeps his word. And how did he keep his word? Well, number one, he promised to David that he would have a son on the throne, What's happened? God has put David's son on the throne. God promised also in 2 Samuel 7 that that he would build a house for himself through this son. And now what has has God done? Well, he's built a house for himself through Solomon. This is even, even further kind of pointedly emphasized in verses 54 to 56, which we didn't read But verse 54, now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord where he had knelt with his hands and outstretched toward heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he has promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses his servant. What's the emphasis? Solomon recognizes that, that God has done exactly what he said he would do. Not one word has failed of all his good promise that he spoke through his or to his servant Moses what do we realize? We realize that, that God is faithful, that, that God did exactly what He said He would do, and, and, and maybe part of the reason we may not be captivated by God is because we fail to realize that God does what He says He's going to do, right? Why doesn't the fact that, that God is faithful, why doesn't that just like excite me? Why doesn't it captivate me? Why does it make me excited? Why does why does this fact that God is faithful not wow my heart? Right, it should. Because I think I think we we may not really believe that God is faithful, at least at times. And why might not we believe that God is faithful? Well, honestly, because we have a, a really hard time seeing it. And why do we have a hard time seeing it? Well, probably because we're evaluating his faithfulness with our own definition of faithfulness instead of his definition of faithfulness. In other words, why do we struggle to believe that God is faithful? Well, because we don't see him being faithful. And why don't we see him being faithful? Well, because the criteria with which we evaluate him, we've made up in our heads instead of using what he's given us in his word. Okay, well, what do you mean? Well, I'll give you some insight in my own heart and probably at the same time help you to understand yours. Right, well, what does it mean for me to say that God is faithful? In other words, what, what, what mechanisms, what criteria do I usually use in my day-to-day life to evaluate God's faithfulness? Well, number one, uh, usually what, one of those is, is, well, I want what I want when I want it. Right? I want exactly what I want when I want it. Okay? That's one criteria. Second one is I don't want any pain whatsoever. Right? Pain and suffering are completely off the table when it comes to God. If, if I have pain and if I have suffering, if I'm hurting, then God is not being faithful. Right? That's the second part of that definition usually. And the third part goes a little bit further. And it says, well, I don't even want the possibility of pain and suffering. Right? I start to get nervous and I start to, I start to uh, really question myself and really question God when the possibility of pain or suffering is kind of on the table, when it's up in the air. Right, When life is not going well and, and, and things are uh, up in the air, I, I begin to question His faithfulness when the possibility of pain and suffering are on the table. Right, Those three things. We get what we want when we want it. We want absolutely no pain. We don't even want the possibility of pain. That's, that's usually kind of how we figure out whether or not God is being faithful to us at any given moment. When the reality is, is this is how we end up gloomy and hopeless and really Unimpressed by God's faithfulness because those things don't happen. But if we tweaked our, our definition of God's faithfulness a little bit and we just simply kind of categorized it as yes those things may happen to me but God will be with me and he will never leave me or forsake me in the midst of all those things then we might come up with a bit of a different answer. Because the reality is is that God gives us what we need when we need it, not what we want when we want it. And the reality is, is that God often sanctifies us and draws us closer to himself through pain and suffering and through the possibility of it. To take those things off the table would for him be to take away a tool that he uses to draw us closer to himself, to, to help us, to encourage us to rely on him and to trust him and to believe him. Right, if we if we if we replaced God's definition of faithfulness, the, the definition that we're given here, right, God has spoken and he did what he said he was gonna do, right? We if we if we don't impose our own criteria upon God's word, but instead read it and understand it and live life according to it, we might not end up quite as gloomy and hopeless, apathetic and underwhelmed as we might be on our bad days. God is faithful. And he's proven, he's proven his faithfulness to a handful of us in this room who've been like, learning this new definition of faithfulness most recently. And some of us have been brought along by the Lord Christ and his ministry through the Spirit and his ministry in the Word over the past few months to really learn <laughs> that our definition of faithfulness is not a really good one to operate off of, but his is. And he's been doing that. Right? He has been drawing you closer to himself, proving himself reliable, proving himself to, to do what he says he's going to do according to his word. God is faithful. And to have a misunderstanding, a, a, a misunderstanding of what that means, absolutely can lead to apath- apathy and. and Underwhelmedness when it comes to the Lord, it it could lead to an absence of of joy and gladness of heart. But what else? How about how about the fact that God is forgiving? We see this in Solomon's prayer from verses twenty two all the way through verse fifty three. What does it mean that God is forgiving? Well, God's, uh, Solomon's prayer assumes a God who is forgiving. Because what is he doing? Well, he's asking God to forgive future sins of Israel. Not, not if they occur, but when they do. Right? You can just look at kind of the outline of the prayer that he offers to God. In verses 20 through, 22 through 26, he He asked God to keep his covenant promises in verses 27 to 30. He asked God to hear his prayer, especially with respect to forgiveness. Specifically in verses 33 to 34, he asked God to forgive his people of their sin after his fatherly discipline when they lose their battles. And they cry out to him and they realize that they've sinned and they ask for forgiveness. Verses 35 and 36. When God sends a drought on them because of their sin and they realize their sin and they ask for forgiveness, Solomon asked, them to for, or Solomon asked God to forgive, him, forgive them. When there's a pestilence in the land because of their sin and they realize it and they ask God for forgiveness, Solomon asked God, please forgive them. In verses 46 through 50, which are eerie when reading them. Right, when, when his people wind up in exile and they realize their sin and they cry out and ask for forgiveness. Solomon asks God to forgive them. It's eerie because that's exactly where the book of Kings ends. Like that actually happens. And so do the others. Solomon's prayer assumes a god who is gracious and forgiving towards his people why his prayer answers that question too because these are your people because these people belong to you verse 51 for they are your people and your heritage which you brought out of which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace God is a forgiving God. It's part of who He is. It's part of His character. And again, for some of us, that one really doesn't affect us that much. It really doesn't mean that much. It really doesn't help us that much when it comes to living life in this world. Right, again, we could ask the question, why doesn't this... This fact about God, about who He is, why doesn't it wow my heart? Why doesn't it amaze me? Why doesn't, it, why doesn't it, it cause me to leap with joy? Why doesn't it cause me to have gladness of heart? One reason may be, kind of building on what Pastor Michael preached this morning, is because we've, we've cheapened our sin over time, which has had the effect of cheapening god's forgiveness as well, right we've cheapened our sin we we no longer think that it's it's really uh, that big of a deal which which actually hurts our, our relationship with god and and, and really uh, helps uh, it, it waters down our understanding of the gospel because if my sin is cheap then Well, then God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ is also, it's not really that much, it's not really needed that much, it's not really that significant, it doesn't really help me that much because it's not that big of a deal in the first place. Well, why does, how do I cheapen my sin? What's got me in this place to start off with? Well, I don't know, but but lots of times it's, it's the frequency of actually doing the sin and a failure to actually practice a repentance that is, that is ongoing. Right, Lots of times we, we, we fail to realize that, that repentance is, is a thing that, that doesn't just happen in the blink of an eye, but it's something that's continual. It's something that, that keeps on happening. It's something that, that I do continually. Like when the, when the Puritans talk about fighting sin... As was mentioned this morning, they talk about it in a continual fashion. Be killing it. In other words, it takes a while to kill it a lot of times. like This is the mission of my Christian life at this point, is to be killing the sin, to be attentive to fighting it. Many times we just we sin, we ask forgiveness, and we move on, and we don't think about it again until it happens again, until we do it again. and yes absolutely god's forgiveness, christ's forgiveness uh, extends to even those sins but 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 doing that is not a neutral thing in the Christian life. Right? being negligent toward fighting my sin and not giving it the attention that it deserves, not realizing how dangerous that it actually is, not really how not realizing how costly it actually is, is dangerous for my heart. Because Christ becomes someone that I don't really need. But conversely, when I realize how, really, how costly my sin is, and we do realize that, right? When someone sins against us, we really realize just how costly sin is, because it hurts, right? It doesn't feel good. It makes us sometimes pretty angry, so we realize the cost of sin, just maybe not our own, but when I do realize that my sin is costly, well, then Christ becomes everything that I need. Right? When I realize that my sin is actually a big deal, What comes along with that is is realizing the beauty and magnificence of the Lord Jesus Christ and and how much I am helpless without His grace. If we want to be captivated by God, captivated by the Lord Jesus Christ, one step towards doing that is to to realize that our sin is a big deal as, as was preached this morning faithfully. And so why am I a Christian that struggles so much with joy and gladness of heart? And why am I so apathetic? And why am I so not wowed by God himself? Why? It may be because we don't really realize that God is present. It may be that we don't realize that God is faithful. It may be because we don't really realize well, we don't really appreciate how God is forgiving. But when we do realize those things, when those things are put into their proper categories and understood correctly and understood biblically, what, what, what we get is when we realize that God is present, it makes a difference in how I, a difference in how I fight my sin. Right? Leaning into the power of the Holy Spirit, when I realize that God is faithful, it makes a difference... And the way I feel when suffering comes, and the way that I feel, and the way that I deal with pain, and the way that I deal with life. When I realize that, that God is forgiving, it makes a difference in the way that I worship. My heart is, is stirred up with affection and need for Christ Himself. When I realize these things, it makes a difference in in the whole of my life. It makes a difference in in my entire relationship with God and my relationship to everything that comes to pass every second of every day. Because I know God's faithful. I know that He's going to help me fight. And I know that he's forgiving. Captivated by Christ. And I can walk home joyful and glad of heart because of all the goodness that the Lord has done. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the help of your spirit to confirm your word in our hearts. To show us the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ. To show your faithfulness. And to help us, Lord, to, to correct our sinful understandings of all these things. We pray, O oh Lord, uh, that you would continue to help us. That you would apply the truth of your word continually in our hearts that we might be captivated by you and be defined by joyfulness and gladness of heart. Thank you for these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.